Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for today, and we thank you for this time together, the fellowship we enjoy. We thank you for the food, and we pray that the Bible study will be meaningful for all of us. And we remember to pray for our agape singers and their leaders and what they're about this week, and may they have a good time and a great time for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for being here today, and we're going to look at one of the Psalms today. You can tell by the outline you've received already. You know, I refer to the book of Psalms as Israel's hymn book. I don't know that they sang them like we do, but nevertheless, that was sort of the purpose that the book of Psalms played. So it's a great book, a great resource for devotion and for worship. And perhaps you have a favorite psalm. Um, some might say the first psalm. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. I mean, that's the way it begins. Or you might prefer, uh, say, the eighth psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how magnificent, how great is your presence and your glory in all the earth. And you go on to the 46th Psalm, which talks about God being our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Maybe 51. You know, that's David's prayer of confession. Have mercy upon me, O God. By your loving kindness, blot out my transgressions, and so on and so forth. I think most people would probably say Psalm 23, don't you think? Yeah, the Lord is my shepherd. The shepherd's song, I shall not want, and so forth. Now, C.S. Lewis, great English writer and scholar, says that the 19th Psalm is the greatest poem in the Psalter, the greatest poem in the book of Psalms. So that says something about this Psalm that we're going to consider today. Psalm 19. I would say about it, that it gives us a definitive word on one of the most important doctrines of the Christian faith. And that is the doctrine of revelation. Revelation. The doctrine of revelation is that God has made himself known to us. Or I'm using the language here that God speaks. God speaks to us. We know God not because we have searched and found him out but because he has come to us and made himself known to us, and he reveals himself to us. And this psalm speaks of how he reveals himself. If you see the outline there, first through the world he has created, and then through the word that he has inspired. And then finally we're going to talk about how he speaks to the servant that he has redeemed. Okay, so if we start off with the world he has created, and let's read the first uh, three verses there. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. 
Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Actually, I read the first part of verse 4 there too, but that's a part of that thought. So God has revealed himself through the creation, and the psalmist focuses here upon the heavens. And day and night, that is, in general, all of creation reflects the glory of God reveals to us the handiwork of God, if you please. God speaks to us through the creation. Now, he does not speak in words, it says. You know about body language. We can communicate with people through body language without saying anything. Well, the body of the heavens communicates to us without saying any words. It communicates to us... uh, in an abundant way. You know, the heavens pour forth the revelation of God. And they do it day after day and night after night. It is consistent. It is persistent. It is always there. And no matter what language a person may speak, if you speak in English, or if you speak in Spanish, or if you speak in Russian, or if you speak in German, or one of the many, many other languages, the Heavens, nevertheless, speak and reveal to you the glory of God. And that's a wonderful thing. You know, think about it. When we look out uh, in the world around us and we look up at the blue sky, well, today we see a cloudy sky, do we not? But the clouds, you know, often clouds are in different shapes and different colors and so forth, and they reveal to us of the glory of God. And you think about the change of the seasons. And we've just come through a time when everything is getting green, or it's already green now. And a little later on, it's going to turn into other colors and so forth. And the landscape and everything about the world we live in speaks to us about the glory of God. Uh, the psalmist refers uh, to the to the stars. Oh, the mystery of the stars. When on a cloudless night and a dark night, and I used to live out in the country, away from the lights of the city, and you look up into the heavens and you see the stars, the manifold stars. You know, they say that you can probably see about 3,000 stars with your naked eye. I never have counted them personally, but uh, that's what they tell me. But when you stop to think about it, they say, you know, they say it's a real authority. So they say that in the galaxy of the Milky Way, of which we are a part, there are probably 300 billion stars. 300 billion. And, you know, of course, they tell us there are billions of galaxies and so there got to be trillions and trillions and trillions of stars out there. Now, isn't that something to reflect upon and to think about? You know, I saw a little note the other day that someone had contributed $10 million to the University of Texas for the study of the universe. $10 million. Well, that's a lot of money, but it's not going to go very far in studying the universe. 
I can tell you that right now. Of course, there's a consortium of schools involved in this, and so I'm sure that hundreds of millions of dollars are being poured into this. But I don't care how long they study and how smart they are, they're never going to completely understand the creation that God has made. It's just uh, to the glory of God. His presence is revealed in all of that. And, of course, specifically, the psalmist speaks about the sun. Oh, sun, which is, of course, the center of our solar system. It dominates our solar system. It is an incredible, unbelievable body. It takes up more than 98% of the mass of the solar system of which we are part, of which the earth is a very small part. It is 93 million miles away from the earth. The surface is about 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. When it gets 110, we get pretty warm, don't we? Think about 10,000 degrees. Think about the size of this. A million earths, a million earths can fit into the sun. Wow. And the thing about it is that we happen to be just the right distance from the sun for life to exist. If we were any closer or any further away, life could not exist as we know it. We're in just the right place. And we think about how minute the earth is. You know, the earth is just a minuscule part of the solar system, which is a minuscule part of the Milky Way galaxy, which is a minuscule part of the universe. Well, I like to think about those things. And it just uh, it produces within me a sense of awe. Not necessarily an awe at the universe, the creation, but an awe at the God who created this. When you think, oh, Lord, my God, when I an awesome wonder, consider all the worlds your hands have made. I see the stars and hear the rolling thunder, your power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior, God, to thee. How great thou art. How great thou art. Well, I didn't read that part about the sun, but let me go ahead and, and finish that. In the heavens, this is 4B now. In the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun. You know, the psalmist uh, wouldn't have known all that astronomy has revealed since then. So when he looked up into the sky, he saw the sky as being a kind of a tent. And within that tent, of course, uh, there is the sun. But he was impressed with the sun. He said, it is like a bridegroom coming forth out of the pavilion. When the bridegroom came out for the wedding, he was, of course, properly dressed and had all of these attendants and so forth. And he would go to the home of the bride and he would there take his bride and so he compares the sun to that. And he compares the sun 
to an athlete or a champion getting ready to run the race. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes a circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. Oh, aren't you grateful for the sun? You know, you can, you can understand why people in ancient times tended to worship the sun. I mean, in, in the Middle East, uh, in the, the area where scripture was uh, being inspired and people worship the sun. And I'm sure that the writer uh, has that in mind as he points us to the fact that God is the creator of the sun. I mentioned C.S. Lewis a moment ago. A quote from him. Listen to this. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Chew on that a little bit. Think about that. Now, we could, of course, say that he's talking about the sun, S-O-N there. And so the Son of God fulfills the kind of purpose in our lives that the sun does in our solar system. Uh, and by the sun, we see everything around us. But by the Son of God, we see truth. We see reality. We uh, are able to appropriate a worldview by the truth that is revealed in the sun. We see everything else. Now, the second part of this psalm, which begins at verse 6, is uh, of a different... As a matter of fact, there's some scholars who think, you know, scholars are always thinking something. (laughs) And they sometimes, I think, overthink things, in all honesty. But... uh, some of them have studied this. They said, well, this was probably two psalms at one time. And then they took those two psalms and put it together. Now, actually, I don't see any reason for thinking that. I think they fit well together. And just because some different words are used here and there doesn't mean uh, that they should be separated. But... um, Verse verse seven. Let's let's read this next passage. Now, so God has revealed Himself to us without words in the heavens, in the creation. But God has also revealed Himself to us more specifically through words. In other words, God has spoken through the word that He has inspired. And so that's what the psalmist is talking about. We're getting, well, actually verse 7. Okay, let's read that. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold, 
They are sweeter than honey. Now, this is about the Word of God. We would say the Bible. God has revealed himself through the Bible. Now, it's interesting, and you may have noticed this. You may be aware of this. But in the first part of the psalm, up until that verse 7, the name God is, well, the Hebrew is El there, God. That's a generic name for God. I mean, when you start, for example, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I mean, that's the name for God that we have there. But in the second part of the psalm, the name is Yahweh. Okay, that's translated Lord. So in the first part of the psalm, it is God. In the second part of the psalm, it is Lord. It's interesting to notice that as as you go through the Bible because, for example, in, in Psalm 8, it starts off with Yahweh. Psalm 46, it starts off with God and so forth. But uh, when we come to using the word Yahweh, this is a more personal name. Uh, this is a covenant name, if you please. This is the name of God as he has revealed himself through the word, but even more specifically, as he has revealed himself through his son, Jesus Christ. So we have these six statements here, six specific statements about how God has spoken through his word and how he has blessed us through speaking to us through his word. Now, you know, these verses are really uh, a sort of a, well, I'd say a psalm. Well, let me put it another way. Psalm 119 is an expansion of these verses. Now, you know, Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the Bible, 176 verses. And it's a psalm on the word of God. And so it actually expands what we have in this paragraph here. And uh, that could be one of your favorite psalms, by the way. Psalm 119. Now, the psalmist is using repetition here. He is reiterating, uh, making a point, and making it again and again. So he uses different words for the word. And really, the probably the most important statement here is that first line where it says that the law, and by the way, that is the word Torah, uh, which is a word that should communicate to us more than the word law does. It's more like instruction, the instruction of God, the teaching of God's word is I put it here a little bit differently than it is in the text. Flawless, that is, perfect or complete. And it serves to refresh the person, to restore the person, to revive the person, as it were. That is, that is a rich word there that can suggest bringing a person to repentance. So that the word becomes not only the means through which we are converted and come into relationship with God, but the word that continues to revive us and restore us as we go along. Now, the other statements here uh, tend to elaborate on that, uh, using some, some different language. But once you've said what you have in that first line, uh, you pretty well have the gist of what the psalmist is communicating to us here 
about the Word of God. It is all you need. It is complete. It is perfect. It is flawless. It is without error. It is God's Word. And it is able to be your guide both to salvation and to life. But let's look at those other statements as we go along. Six statements. Okay, second one, the testimony. The testimony, that's another way of speaking about the word. Or another way of speaking about the Torah, because the Torah is a general word. The testimony, or the witness of Scripture, is dependable or trustworthy. And it bestows wisdom. It will make you wise. I mean, if you study God's word, you will be exposed to the wisdom of God. Okay, going on. The commandments are pure and bring light to the way. Um, when you think about the commandments of God, and this is still another way of speaking of the word of God. Uh, but you think about the Ten Commandments, for example. The Ten Commandments shed light on life. How we are to live. They instruct us, help us to understand what is our relationship to God and also what is our relationship to others. And those commandments are pure. Uh, they are clean and they enlighten us about life. Now it goes on to talk about the precepts. And this would have to do probably with specific principles of the word. Uh, that may, in a sense, go beyond uh, the specific commandments to uh, more abiding principles. And these precepts are right, and they bring joy to the heart. And then the next one, by the way, is a little bit different. Some have tried to justify the psalmist in putting this one in here. Because it doesn't parallel the others exactly. When it says the fear of the Lord. Well, the fear of the Lord is, I think, not a way of characterizing the word as these others are. But it is an attitude that is engendered by the word of God. In other words, the word of God creates fear in us. Fear basically meaning reverence. And a reverence that abides, a reverence that lasts. And so forth. And then that final one, the ordinances or rules are true and always right. And sometimes this is translated judgments and so forth. The decisions that God makes and the decision that God has made to give us his word and all of the judgments therein are right and lead to righteousness. So we have those specific statements about how God has revealed himself through his word. So he has revealed himself through the world that he has created, and he has revealed himself through the word that he has inspired. And notice that last statement there. These words, verse 10, are more precious than gold, than much fine gold. They are sweeter than honey. Honey from the comb. Hmm, honey dripping from the comb. Get the picture, get the taste. Is anything sweeter than honey? Well, the word is sweeter than honey. 
So the word of God is priceless. You know, I keep seeing these things on TV about buying gold. You getting any of that? <laughs> I hadn't bought any yet. But uh, obviously it's saying that gold is the most valuable thing you can own. And so we understand the value of gold. In the material world, gold, you know, represents wealth and value. But the word of God is more to be desired than much fine gold. And the taste of the word, the delight that one experiences in the word is sweeter than honey. Well, moving on to the third part of that. Now, God speaks to the servant he has redeemed. We're talking about verses 11 through 14. Now, what happens here is the psalmist begins to respond. Okay, God can be seen through the world that he has created, and that creates in us a sense of awe. God can be seen and God can be heard through the word that he has inspired. And so we have these statements that uh, elaborate on that. But now the psalmist speaks personally. So that we're talking here about uh, personal revelation. The revelation that uh, grips us, that grasps us. The revelation that speaks directly to us. Which is what ought to happen when we see God or hear from God or read God's word that we understand that this is God speaking to me. This is God's word to me. As a matter of fact, you can say the Bible is God's word all day long, but until it becomes his word to you, until it becomes a word that you embrace, you've not really understood, I think, what is the purpose of God in giving us his word. So how does this affect the psalmist? How should this affect us when we hear from God? Well, here's what he says. By them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So I've said that uh, the revelation of God, when God speaks, it brings warning to us. And it brings blessing to us. And those two seem to be a little bit of a contrast, but that's the way it is. Now, this warning, okay, you read the word of God, you're going to be warned. That starts in the first chapters of Genesis, doesn't it? When God created Adam and Eve and he put them in the Garden of Eden, he said, okay, this is all yours to enjoy. And you can eat of every tree in this garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when you eat of it, you shall surely die. Is that a warning? Yeah, I think so. Now, gee whiz, I'm thinking that what God is saying here, and I'm going to read between the lines and see beyond the surface of these words, Well, the devil knows what he's talking about, doesn't he? Because the devil knows that when you do that, you're going to be like God's. And that's the one thing that is denied you. 
You are a human creature. You are not God. Okay? Now, the devil says you can be God. That's what he's tempting Adam and Eve, to be gods. In other words, you can be smarter than God. You can uh, run your own life. You can do your own thing. You don't have to listen to God. That's old-fashioned. Well, so that warning is there. You hear it again and again through Scripture. But I think about what it says in Proverbs fourteen twelve. You know, there is a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is the way of death. So that sort of sums up what we're talking about when we talk about the warning. Then there's the blessing, of course. In reading them, there is warning. In obeying them, there is great reward. And I think here the psalmist is referring back to uh, those results of hearing from God in his word that are enunciated in those six statements that we just covered. In other words, the reward of restoration, refreshing, uh, the reward of wisdom, the reward of an enlightenment, of joy, of reverence, of righteousness, and so forth. So, uh, almost like the fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? I mean, the benefits, the blessings, the rewards of reading God's Word. And by the way, the only way that we're going to really appreciate and understand and appropriate the Word of God that is intended for us, that is intended for me, is by the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, here in the Old Testament, uh, we do not have that uh, much of a doctrine of the Holy Spirit, but we know that from a New Testament point of view, it is very obvious that it is the Spirit-inspired Word, the Spirit of God touching the Spirit of our heart that uh, makes this Word really come alive to us. I want to read to you a word here from 1 Corinthians uh see. I've got so many marks in my Bible that when I turn to a passage, I can't be able, I don't know which one I marked. Anyway. Okay. Well, I know what it says. Let's see. Verses... on the wrong page there. Get me out. What it says is that we cannot understand the word of God without the spirit of God. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Okay. And my eyes just won't, won't find it right now. Okay. Let me see where it is. 1 Corinthians, okay, chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. All right. That's not right. (laughs) I apologize to you. I'm sorry. But you get the idea, right? Second, 
What's that? 210. Okay, thank you, brother. Thank you. 210. Read it for me. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. You know? Yeah. And then going on, 13. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths and spiritual words. The man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Okay, that's what I was looking for. Okay, thank you, Phil. Appreciate that. You got me in the right place there. Okay, so we have warning and we have blessing. And then more specifically, the revelation that comes personally and the revelation that comes from the Spirit leads us to, as I put it here, confession and prayer. So let's see what the psalmist says at this point. He tells us that who can discern his errors? We're at verse 12 now. Who can discern his errors? The Word of God makes him conscious of his own sin, his own unworthiness. So who can discern his errors? You know, I I have sin in my life that I'm not even aware of. Because I'm not just, I don't just sin, I'm a sinner. You see what I mean? So there are things going on in my life that surface from time to time that I'm not even aware that that there. So he, he is asking God to help him to discern those hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. So they're hidden sins and they're willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So his response to the revelation of God is that uh, he be aware of the shortcomings in his own life, both in his thoughts and also in his deeds. So it leads to confession. You know, First John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I think that's what the psalmist is longing for here, that he will be forgiven both as a sinner and for his sins that he's aware of and that he commits. And then there's that final word, which is familiar to everyone, and which represents the prayer that perhaps would be appropriate to pray daily. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. My rock means my strength and my redeemer. And we are redeemed by the grace of God, and we are strengthened by the grace of God, and forgiven and cleansed, by the grace of God. So 
God speaks to us through the world he has created, through the word that he has inspired, and he speaks to us individually, servants who he has redeemed. Amen? Well, let's pray. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for how we know you from your revelation in the heavens, but especially how we know you through the word that is before us, the Bible, the scripture. So help us, God, to be aware and alert and awake to appropriate revelation and your word in every area that you speak. And may we glorify you in our response. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.